Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In Season 6, our Disease Films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit. Some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> Our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big? Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. We talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. This 
This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the final in our disease film series. It tracks the deadly pig bat in Steven Soderbergh's 2011 film Contagion. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or join us on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you've ever coughed from that special place deep inside... And you better queue up for the next reel's Instagram hashtag Pony Prize hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. And with that, since Games Master Stephen Smart is smartly avoiding any potential viral epidemic by enjoying an island vacation, I'm here to fill you in. This week's movie was Thunderbolt and Lightfoot from 1974, written and directed by Michael Cimino and starring Clint Eastwood and Jeff Bridges. A fantastic movie. Congrats to Brendo61, who guessed it on Image One. You are entered once again into the Pony Prize hat. Congrats. Congratulations. We do have some follow-up from friend of the show, Ben Lott, with the Blot Spot. How'd we do on blindness? Yes, uh, I think uh, he was not quite the fan. He said, And I thought Children of Men was bleak. Blindness makes that film look like singing in the rain. But that's actually (laughs) not what made me hate blindness. I just couldn't deal with the idiocy of every single character. It seems no one in this film has a brain. Thankfully, you guys covered a lot of the best examples of the rampant stupidity. I hated this movie and don't really care what it was trying to say through allegory because an effective allegory would include people who behaved in a relatable fashion instead of people who are demented fools. Your rank 249, my rank 240. You know, it's interesting. I I mean, I think we comfortably agree uh on on this one i it's interesting that um that he uses the term demented fools uh and this yet this film or or i should say and this film wins against the crazies in his matchup which i think (laughs) is a riot Uh, but it also won against the women and i had to follow up in the slack group uh, with ben because i thought that was an interesting uh, uh interesting pairing given how this film is both stupid on that front, you know, showcasing human idiocy, uh, but also a uh, a film that I just knowing Ben over the years and his response to the films that we do as we do, uh, I expected this film to be straight to the bottom, uh, and he he pivoted on me. I was really surprised. Did you see his response there? I did. He said that blindness was only insulting to the characters in it. But the women was insulting to the entire gender. Uh, <laughs> all, blindness, all characters are idiots. The women, all characters are degrading. I think that's a. Uh, I think that's an interesting point, and it actually puts his rank that it actually puts his rank of blindness higher than ours by nine points. I. I mean, I. I ended up liking blindness. I think more than either of you, even though I rank it low. I still. I still find it uh, interesting to watch. Oh, I like it much less this week than I did last week. <laughs> it is deteriorating rapidly. <laughs> That's funny. Andy, it's time. Let's do some trailers. So my trailer, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just jumped on that. I did. <laughs> That's because yours is going to be more fun to talk about. Okay, all right, go for it. So, What's yours, so Andy? I am what, talking what about tragedy of visual stimulus. Have you brought to me today? <laughs> 
I had no idea this film was happening until this trailer uh, landed on my computer There's today. There's probably a reason for that. There's probably a reason for that. <laughs> this is Rings, the sequel nobody was expecting, but somebody decided to deliver to us uh, <laughs> uh, in the Ring series. This is, of course, um, the uh, interesting uh, horror films that were kind of uh, based on Ringu, the really fascinating uh, Korean horror film. And its sequel, we had Ring and The Ring 2, which were interesting films. And now we have Rings, because uh, why not? Let's give us some more, because we love sequels. Um, I, I just don't even know what to say about this. It looks interesting. It looks kind of like another follow-up in this story. Um, this particular round, we have Samara, who's returning with a familiar videotape to strike terror again in the third film of The Ring series. It, it's clearly... Samara, the uh, the the horror character, the uh, creepy girl, is the one who is uh, after uh, after a new person. And she's, I guess she's, Samara. This is Samara, the one who was who was the cursed girl on the videotape. Isn't is that, that right? right? I, I I think that's right. I yeah. I watched the ring, uh, and I I don't know if I lost a bet. I didn't. I don't remember it. I I really didn't like it, uh, and so. I, I have a hard time remembering it. I do remember there was the girl on the videotape, and if you watched it, you you know you got messed up. Right, exactly. Yeah, there's this. Uh, Samara is the girl who crawls out of the screen, uh, and you know you yeah. have seven days and before she'll kill you or something. Uh, it's it's all kind of nonsensical. I mean, the movie is fun to watch. I actually really enjoyed um, the American remakes of the uh, Korean ones, and I enjoyed the Korean ones. They're all kind of fun. I just really had no idea that they were remaking or not remaking, but adding a, another chapter to this uh, to this uh, film uh, franchise. But here they are. I mean, and like I was saying, the the plot on IMDb. It, Clearly, it's not even important who our story's about. All they seem to care about is Samara, who's actually now striking terror in the heart of more people. In this particular case, we've got some more teens. Uh, Johnny Galecki, uh, Laura Wiggins, Amy Teagarden uh, look like some of them. And um, yeah, they're trying to deal with this uh, curse because one of them makes the mistake of watching the video. It looks like it's now on YouTube. She watches it and now she's got seven days. <laughs> and I will say... Samara kills you in seven days, but I will say, over the course of those seven days, Samara does nothing but torture you. It's it's just torture and, and horror through the whole uh, film. As it's it's kind of like watching Final Destination. This uh, this girl has to deal with you know telephone poles almost crushing her and all sorts of crazy stuff. Uh, it looks very silly, and uh, of course we do have Vincent D'Onofrio. Uh, popping in as it looks like a blind blind priest or something. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> what do you do? What do you do after Kingpin? <laughs> the mighty have fallen. I don't know. Well, you know he's got Magnificent Seven coming out. So he at does. Least there's that. True. Uh, but yeah, this is uh, directed by uh, F. Javier Gutierrez, who is. Um, it looks like this might be. Uh, uh, well, he did before the fall. He did before the fall, yep. which. Um, Looked interesting and uh, and, and uh, short stuff before that. So check it out. Your man Akiva Goldsman has uh, writing credit. You know I how know. much you loved uh, Batman. Uh, Akiva uh, Goldsman has. I have some issues with Akiva, and uh, but I believe Akiva was involved in the other ones at least. So true. He was also involved in Batman and Robin. Yes, he was involved in a lot of interesting things. He's lost, involved lost in, in space. King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. <laughs> yeah, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Yes, you're right. And you know what's funny is that they have announced Mask. Mobile Armored Strike Command, which was a cartoon I loved as a kid. Totally. <laughs> and now it's announced that he is producing that. Oh so 
I had no idea that they were going to be doing that. Anyway, clearly a lot of things are more interesting to talk about than this particular movie. So that's it. This movie is coming out. It's going to, you know, it makes sense. It's going to be kind of a Halloween-y sort of thing. Uh, Here it's opening October 28th, and it's kind of going around the world from the end of October through the beginning of December. Oh, Andy, glad you have those movies. (laughs) That's the thing is like, (laughs) even though I just think it looks terrible, I'll still watch it because Yeah. It's another one of the rings uh, right. ring franchise. That's right. I my movie is uh boy this was a surprise. Yeah. Uh this this movie I I just saw this trailer uh, today. Uh this is a trailer of course from Mr. Church, uh, directed by Bruce Beresford, written by Susan McMartin. Uh stars Eddie Murphy, uh Natasha McClone and Britt Robertson. Uh Eddie Murphy plays Mr. Church. He is a, a caretaker and comes into the home of a of a little girl and her dying mother uh, as a cook and that uh, ends up spanning a 15-year relationship and he becomes a, a member of the family and it's Eddie Murphy. Where has he been and what right does he have to make me tear up in a trailer? Exactly. I ask you, Andy, what right? No right. <laughs> Right. What is he thinking? I I just don't know. Uh, you know, he is. I I did not see the Beverly Hills Cop uh, TV movie. Um, the last time I I didn't see a thousand words. I didn't see Tower Heist. Uh, I I didn't. Uh, you know, I I haven't seen a lot of the Shrek stuff. So for me, you know, he's been gone. He has been absolutely gone since 2006 uh, Dreamgirls, which I thought he was exceptional in. Uh, and now that he's back with Mr. Church, I, I feel like he may just wipe away the last seven years. Except for the Shrek stuff, which is obviously, uh, you know, a, a different a different uh, thing. The Look, whole no, I thing, and I've got to tell you, I love the character of Donkey. I think he he is a great voice for this character. And the original Shrek, maybe Shrek Two, it, it was just uh, it was a terrific laugh ride. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It came out at just the right time with my kids. Uh, I'm a big fan of of those movies, and they milked it like crazy. So fine, let them have it. I, <laughs> it, you know, it, that's great. I haven't seen anything else uh, beyond that. And uh, well, no, I, I haven't either. You know, I, I did see Shrek the Third, but really, I mean. All the TV stuff, the I haven't seen any of it. I didn't see Norbit. Uh, maybe saw a little bit of that on a TV. But this is like out of the blue, like out of the yeah. blue, this movie. I didn't even, I hadn't heard of this. And uh, it is uh, it is quite exciting. I mean, yeah, you go back. I mean, the last thing that he did, uh, not counting uh, Shrek or Dreamgirls, that I would constitute as something that was worth watching was probably uh, Bowfinger in 1999. Um, after that, it's been a lot of, uh, you know, the Nutty Professor sort of things and uh, uh, Pluto Nash and Norbit and a lot of things that I kind of discounted. I think it's great that he's coming back with this. And I agree. I mean, I was totally not expecting to practically start crying watching the trailer you picked. So thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, Natasha McElhone, I mean, we love her. We've talked about her, I believe, uh, in Ronin, right? Absolutely, we did. Uh, which just is fantastic. And of course, Britt Robertson, who, uh, you know, even though I didn't care for Tomorrowland very much, um, I really enjoyed her in it. I think that she's got a great presence on screen. And uh, there is something really interesting about this uh, bond that she ends up forming with uh, Mr. Church, a.k.a. Eddie Murphy, in uh, in the trailer here. So I'm quite excited about that. And of course, Bruce Beresford, who... Um, 
who we like quite a bit, Driving Miss Daisy, we've talked about on the show, and he's done just a lot of really great films. So um, it's it looks like it's right up um, my alley. It's totally something that I want to see, and uh, very much looking forward to it. Quite the surprise you pulled on me this week. Pete. Well, I I am so happy that I was able to do that. The only thing that I would say uh, on your point about Brit uh, Brit Robertson, I totally agree with you. I think she has a shot at delivering a, a performance here that is more than than her sweetness. Uh, she wears sweetness right on her sleeve, and even when she is in more serious roles, she's very sweet. And I think this is a this might be a shot to do something a little bit more. Um, this uh, regarding Bruce Beresford, it it may ring this film. It may ring just a little bit too close to Driving Miss Daisy, and that's the only thing that I I worry about. It 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 uh, you know what I mean? Like I, I wonder don't what Spike say Lee's going to say. But well, <laughs> yeah, right. So. I don't know. I I feel uh, really good. The trailer is lovely. It's uh, uh, it comes out September sixteenth, twenty sixteen. So it's coming right soon. Um, what a great surprise! Can't wait, Mister Church. Stop touching your face, Andy. It was a groundbreaking ceremony for a new factory. Did she mention seeing anyone who was sick? Anyone on a plane at the airport? No. She said she was jet lagged. <laughs> The average person touches their face three to five times every waking minute. In between, we're touching doorknobs, water fountains, and each other. Matt! No, no, uh, uh, go up to your room, honey. So we have a virus with no treatment protocol and no vaccine at this time. You had a seizure this morning, Beth. She had a history of seizures? No, no, no. Allergies? As of last night, there were 32 cases. Unfortunately, she did die. Can I go talk to her? Mr. Armoff, your wife is dead. Uh, Contagion, Andy. We're wrapping up the disease series with Contagion. And I have to say, this is the disease film that serves as the model, in my mind, for disease films I'd hope we discuss this week. Or this series. You know what I'm saying? Yes, yes, a hundred times yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where where are the other contagion movies? This is where are these films? Uh, this is a, a it is apparently classified as a medical thriller disaster film. It's directed uh, by Steven Soderbergh, written by Scott C. Burns, uh, stars Marianne Cotillard, uh, Matt Damon, Lawrence Fishburne, Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow, Kate Winslet, uh, and and like a thousand other people. Many of them end up dead, uh, and it's. Uh, it, Wow, it documents the spread of a virus uh, as it, in a very literal, procedural, medically accurate fashion. Uh, and um, in, in that regard, maybe because of the other films that we saw leading up to this uh, acting as a setup for me, I really liked this movie. This movie, I really enjoyed when it was in theaters. I had such a great time, as you can say that, about a film about a disease where everybody's dying. <laughs> right. But I mean, I really did have a great time with it. I enjoyed the way he put it together. I enjoyed the pace. I enjoyed the style. I enjoy this hyperlink cinema as much as we hate that uh, phrase that uh, somebody coined. But I love this type of story where you're jumping around to all these different interconnected people and seeing how everything is uh, kind of intertwined. Um, it makes it kind of it's a small world after all that whole sort of sense of things which I really enjoy particularly in a disease film like this um, this also uh, forever in my mind is going to be linked to um, Rise of the Planet of the Apes 
because of the way that that film ends. And I think I must have seen these two like within a week of each other where I saw Rise of the Planet of the Apes and then I saw this one and I'm like, it's just like the, this is the end of Rise of the Planet of the Apes. This is the monkey disease that everyone's <laughs> going to get and die, except for the ones that, uh, you know, create uh, talking monkeys. Except for Matt Damon. Except for Matt Damon. Everyone lives but Matt Damon, Andy. <laughs> if only he was in Dawn of the Planet. Of the you know what? You, perfect. you know what's going to be left is a blind Matt Damon and Julianne Moore. That's all that's left on Earth after all these movies. <laughs> Everybody's dead. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, but no, I, I really do enjoy this film, and I'm glad that uh, that this film was in the series because yes, uh, I mean I enjoy watching disease films. I I think we. Picked some that uh, neither of us were big fans of. I wish that we had kind of, in retrospect, uh, found some more that we really enjoy. Um, (laughs) But I do feel at least we're ending on a high note. I think so, too. What I like so much about this film, uh, that it it really addresses uh, real and existential threats through a large catalog of characters. We have characters who are dealing with sort of paranoia through Matt Damon's character. When he discovers that he is, in fact, immune to this thing, we get to see how his paranoia plays out with his daughter as he's protecting her, as he is terrified of people coming into his home, as he carries uh, his shotgun around and, and... you know, bullies her boyfriend as they sneak off together. And, and and so we get to see how how that threat manifests. We get to see these sort of existential threats around our privacy and around public health, you know, information and around what we track. And uh, we get to see a lot about social order and disorder, right? We get to see medical malpractice in the course of a crisis. We have a doctor who, you know... Uh, who gives herself the disease essentially to cure herself with a, a test uh, vaccine. We, we get to see a lot of these things. We get to see Jude Law and his heavy-handed treatment of alternative medicine through his, his blogging character. I think so many of these characters and these themes are woven inside this deceptively complex film. Um, and I love it, even though I do hate the term hyperlink cinema. Okay, do, you, do you remember when we last talked about it? Can you define it for the good people? Um, yeah, hyperlink cinema is a story where it involves a lot of different people, and you're jumping around to different uh, different stories, and they all kind of tie together. I know we talked about it in Syriana. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember if there was another one that we talked about hyperlink cinema. I don't know, but I was up in arms in Syriama, Syriana, Syriama. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't like it. I don't like it. Words mean things. We don't need stupid hyperlink cinema. It's Roger Ebert's uh, fault. No, uh, it, was a, it was somebody else's fault. I know somebody else did it, but Alyssa he's Quart. the one. He's the one who took it. Uh, who who took it to uh, to the mainstream in his review of Syriana. Well, that's right. Yeah, it was Alyssa Court who turned the coin um, for coined, her review yeah. of the. I film think you mean coined the term. <laughs> yes, <laughs> she did turn the coin. She did. She did. Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> she turned the screw and On uh, coined fire. the term. Yes. Woo! Uh, I, but yes, uh, yeah. Syriana. <laughs> uh, one of the things that they uh, that that is critical to a hyperlink cinema film is the use of these uh, uh, sort of uh, many of these. She calls them footnotes, uh, but the, this on-screen text to help you weave your way through uh, multiple uh, interconnecting storylines. This film certainly has those. Um, uh, but mostly it's just a, a complicated narrative, a multi-threaded narrative, and I think we're smart enough people to be able to make it through it. 
Yeah, I mean, Snatch was another one that we did. City of God, they say, was. But City of God, to me, seems more like it's just a time frame sort of yeah. thing. So that's kind of a weird one to throw onto the list. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, in my head, it's just always been a type of film. I mean, Robert Altman was doing these back before there was ever a term. Um, and it's just I enjoyed kind of uh, following different people, like in, in Nashville, or shortcuts, right? It's it's uh, it's very interesting to kind of jump around, and I, I have a great time doing that. Soderbergh, um, you know, I think he kind of did it. Uh, was Traffic the first one that he did it with? I feel like it was. When was when did Traffic? When was Traffic? That was two thousand. Two thousand. Yes. So Traffic. I, I was think thinking was about twenty one twenty one grams, um, which was two thousand three. Yeah. So and that's, that Soderberg. was what I thought, but I think you're right. Traffic was was first. Oh, you're right. Yeah. That was that was uh, in your two, right? Um, so yeah, I, you know, yeah, I don't anyway. know if he's done it that much, but I mean, he he produced Syriana, so I mean, he, it's clearly something that's kind of been in his uh, in his scope. But it seems to really fit, and he did it really well in Traffic. And something that I really enjoyed in Traffic is he kind of did the different color uh, color coding for different parts of the story. Um, and you don't really get that much here. I think that he realized that people are smart enough to kind of click with each of the different stories without mm-hmm. having to go, oh, this is the blue story now. Now we're in the yellow story. Now we're in the white story. Um, I, I think that uh, there's there's a little bit here with obviously the the stuff going on in Minneapolis is is much bluer because it's winter. and um, But I, I don't think it's uh, as critical here. And I think it's very easy to follow. I think so too, um, and you know, I I think that the um, uh, one of the things I do like so much about it is the way these narratives intertwine. One is moving sort of forward uh, as the disease spreads, and then we have the the doctors and the the health uh, infrastructure moving backwards, trying to to uh, retrace the steps of the virus. And you have Jude Law right in the middle, who's trying to to kind of bridge the two uh, processes in the film, and I think it it just works exceptionally well and i you know i i do want to bring up the, things like uh the oceans movies like oceans 11 one of the things that is so nice about that uh, you know more or less procedural heist film is the way uh you know you see him kind of practicing playing with these timelines particularly the the uh the the finale of oceans 11 as they're they are both describing the heist and executing the heist and tricking us with a false sort of a false floor to the heist all at the same time um, through voiceover and um, shots that are uh, cut in out of order. I think that's almost like a training ground for this film, which is on the whole doing a, a similar thing. That's a that's an interesting comparison because I think it just goes to show that this, this whole idea of this hyperlink cinema, um, it goes beyond blending stories together. It, it, it takes just film storytelling and editing a film and it allows you to uh, to kind of explore different ways to put things together and and kind of that intercutting or, or cutting things together that, that don't necessarily mesh and he was even exploring that in out of sight where you have um, some interesting scenes like there's the the scene when uh, George Clooney is having a conversation with Jennifer Lopez in a bar and while they're talking it starts intercutting to them up in the bedroom later and then it, but it, but they're still in the bar having the conversation absolutely and that I is really that's, elegant. That's a great comparison. It, it, and I think that's kind of just the, the nature of that hyperlink cinema is allowing an audience to uh, to get ahead and jump around within the context of the story 
um, because I, I think largely audiences nowadays are able to handle that much, uh, much better. Scott Burns is a screenwriter behind the film. He had worked uh, with Soderbergh on The Informant. Uh, this is very much a talking head film. As much as it's a disease procedural film, there's not a diseases are small, and there's not a lot uh, going on. We get a few scenes of like mob action as social disorder takes over. In the first act, we get some scenes of of you know people getting sick and dying. Uh, but generally, this is a talking film, and so much of the success of the film depends on kind of where camera angle and actors mouths meet uh what's your sense of the overall exposition in the film i think for the most part it works um i i think that they managed to uh to to give us the information we need to understand it in a way that works um you know it works much better for a modern audience than the andromeda strain for example um the storytelling is is succinct it's detailed. We get a lot of inf- interesting information, are not and fomites and all that sort of stuff. We get that interesting, uh, those interesting bits that kind of fit into this world that give us those details, very Apollo 13-esque, where it's those details that, you know, it's great to hear people talking about it. It may not make complete sense, but at least we know these people are, you know, serious scientists. Um while also balancing, uh, you know, the 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 moving forward of the story and, and tracking this disease to uh, to stop it from wiping out everybody on the planet, um, I, I think they do for the most part a good job of blending the exposition with the storytelling and moving the plot forward. Uh, kind of that exposition as bullet. There are a few scenes that definitely stood out to me though that I wrote notes about why why the exposition is so bad here. Um, there was a scene with Elliot Gould talking to his assistant about cooking the samples that it just felt so forced and stagey. Um, it was it was kind of painful for me to sit and listen to the exposition um, as they had to kind of go through that scene. And there were a few others like that where it just felt like, gosh, if they could have just uh, worked on that script a little more, it wouldn't have sounded quite so exposition-y. Um, but, uh, you know, for the most part, though, I thought they did a good job. See, that's so interesting. I didn't have a problem with the cooking the samples scene. Uh, you know, I, I, I almost felt like I may have... Uh, well, I, anyway, it didn't stick out to me as bad. Where I found issues were with uh, Jude Law's character. I mean, that guy, in bridging the two sort of narrative timelines... Um, he spent a lot of time talking about what's going on and, and, uh, with that terrible tooth, uh, <laughs> I, I found it uh, sort of difficult to, uh, every time it came back to him, I, I, I kind of started losing the thread because I, I just was frustrated with him on screen. Did, did he not strike you as kind of, uh, an off character in the film? Well, uh, the, the trick with him and, you know, I go back and forth on, on, if he fits or not. And in the end, I kind of feel that he does. Um, But I think that my issues with him really uh, focus on the fact that his character himself is just a really despicable character. You know, he's basically taking money from these, these companies to kind of plug their stuff as a solution for this virus. And, and, you know, he's kind of just a despicable person running a despicable website, just, you know, very, uh, you know, that sort of character. And so I'm torn if if the reason that uh, I have issues with him is because I, I feel like he's problematic in the script or if it's just because I just didn't like his character, but his character is actually working. 
Yeah. Does that make sense? I, I, yeah, I think it does. He, uh, you know, his his character, the other thing I didn't quite connect with is that they, they made him a, a heavy-handed archetype of, um, you know, at the time, and the time is not that long ago, right? Five years ago. An impression of blogging that is so overtly antagonistic and sub-professional and, um, you know, hacky that uh, I, I it feels dated to me. And that's a that's a dated archetype, not necessarily Jude Law and his performance. But uh, the fact that they also gave him that tooth and then gave him a homeopathic cure to say a thousand times in the film that so invites a, ridic- a ridiculous manufactured lisp for Scythia. Uh, I, I thought was I don't know if that's if that's a comic treatment or or an accidental sort of um, dental irony, but um, it it just really <laughs> got on my nerves. Uh, they were developing this film. They, uh, it was it was actually um, Scott Burns who had been thinking about this film, uh, inspired by Matt Damon's speech in The Informant. Matt Damon has a um, uh, he talks about this um, uh, disease spreading after this phone conversation in uh, in The Informant, and and uh, he actually proposed the film to Soderbergh, who bought in immediately. Uh, in in fact, according to Burns, he says, you know, do you want to pitch it to Soderbergh? And Soderbergh responds, no, we'll get people to be in it if you write a good script, uh, which seems uh, like a loaded compliment. Well, plus with Soderbergh attached, I mean, he's yeah. he, you know, managed to get all sorts of crazy, uh, or crazy great people to be in Full Frontal, which was Truly. a terrible film. Um, and he had that whole contract with them about, oh, you're not going to have trailers, you're not going to have assistance and all that stuff. And it's like all these people jumped on, oh, that sounds like fun. It's like the same sort of thing here, yeah, you know. Yeah. I thought it was funny that uh, it sounded like Burns and Soderbergh were actually developing a film about Lenny Riefenstahl. Um, but Soderbergh smartly was probably concerned that it wasn't going to attract an audience because um, uh, I, I don't think people wanted to learn about about that <laughs> Nazi. Uh, and so... He said, yeah, <laughs> he didn't want to learn let's about do this that disease film. That Nazi. <laughs> uh, but yes, I think that was uh, that was wise. It was interesting, you know. Uh, they they said that one of the things that uh, or this Burns says one of the things that uh, you know he thinks really uh, set them up for success was that they were killing movie stars and that they killed them quickly. That uh, Gwyneth Paltrow is all over the poster and she dies very early in the film. She's peppered throughout in flashbacks, but uh, in in terms of her significance, she doesn't wear makeup. She doesn't uh, she doesn't do anything that is movie starish in this film. She ends up just we meet her and then she begins to sweat and then drool and then seize and then die and he says if we're willing to kill Gwyneth are any of us safe and the next one they kill is a little boy uh, or at least uh, uh, after the unnamed woman uh, whose legs are on the floor uh, so they they kill people quickly and uh, I think that sets the tone for one of the things I really like about this film so much which is that uh, as uh, one of the uh, experts Ian Lipkin Dr. Ian Lipkin who's a, an epidemiologist from Columbia University says disease is democratic and that's one of the things that this movie gets right it kills anybody rich poor uh, uh, famous uh, uh, unknown infamous kills them all so uh, that's one of the things that worked very well yeah and we even uh, get to cut into her head yeah Peel the like skin they're, back. they're serious with with Gwyneth man they're just like hacking and uh, really going to town to see what's going on in her little brain there it's uh it seems a rarity he says he worked with Soderbergh on set every day that he was writing throughout the process every day on set do you think that impacted uh, the final um, the final mix 
I think it's just smart to have a writer around while you're directing. So if things change or if you come up with something that you have somebody there to do it. So to me, it just is a smart, uh, smart way to do that. Well, and there are always writers around, but it's the writer, uh, not, you know, replacement staff, you know, yeah. no. touch up smart. writers, the writer. Yeah. I think that was great. Something that uh, was praised by the uh, the science community is this is the script. They thought it was incredibly accurate. The successes and frustrations of science, um, the fact uh, that before researchers can study a virus, they have to figure out how to grow it in these cultures with, uh, without the virus destroying everything, um, down to the way that they put their suits on, which I really enjoyed watching after outbreak and you know the. The way that uh, uh, Kevin Spacey ends up uh, getting it in that one, it just it, I, it made me very happy to see that the the scientific community really latched onto this and said this is accurate. You guys are not sacrificing the science uh, to amp up the drama, which certainly is true of some of the films that we've talked about. They are they're really trying to remain true to it, and I really enjoyed that about this film and you know i think as we as we get to some points later we'll talk about why maybe that didn't work for some audience members the the other thing i think that plays into that is you know in his overall architecture of the film uh, through soderbergh's direction he it's an intimate film right it's it touches or we see only who the disease touches, and we are in places only where those people exist, right? He doesn't cut to any cities where the characters don't visit. We don't get this sense of uh, political leadership. There's no there are no cuts of the president. We don't have an Independence Day like speech. We uh, you know from the the political leaders. We don't see any giant round tables or war rooms, uh, even though we do see military. Um, he is uh, he was able to create a story that was about these people and still gave us a sense of the overall um, narrative of disease. It was interesting because we do kind of have a war room scene, but it's it's the WHO uh, war room, right? It's, yeah, right. <laughs> and it's a totally different sense of things, and it's 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 more of a scientific um, look at how would these people handle all this, and and I like that. I like that he focused on this and didn't turn it into some big uh, military thing with the military. I mean, certainly we do have the military coming in and closing down um, Minneapolis and all that, but. Uh, but I, I think for the most part, it's just uh, really nice the way that things um, unfold here. It just feels very real. And I think by by focusing the story just on the places where our characters are, we're not cutting to you know some Timbuktu and seeing everybody dying there or anything like that. We're just focusing on these intimate stories, and it keeps everything personal. And I like that in a in a in a film that is uh, so grand in scope because of the number of different stories we have getting told at the same time. It does help um, keep things intimate, and I like that. I like, I mean, we get the. I, I my hunch is that's one of the reasons that they involved the Marion Cotillard story as she gets kidnapped and forced to live in this little tiny village in China. My hunch is that they they wanted that story in there so we could get a sense of kind of a rural village life as opposed to something like Outbreak where we just get you know just the little um, huts in Africa where people are getting killed and we don't really I mean I guess our characters did visit there too but I mean you know what I'm saying it's like you know we have a main character there hence we get to know some of the people in the little village well it makes it much more human doesn't it that Absolutely. that this is you know it's not just because it's not in a big city doesn't mean it's not civilized and um you know it's it's also it's it's not tribal 
right? It, it's outbreak uh, gives us much more of a stereotype of where disease we uh, runs rampant from a Western perspective, and it, it's not necessarily accurate or fair. Um, but this film, uh, you know, attempts to do this in a way that says, uh, um, you know, everybody is touched, um, and and we get to see that I think in a, a little bit more even-handed way. I, I think that uh, it, it speaks to the sense a lot of these scientists talk about um, that it's not. Uh, if something like this is going to happen, it's when something like this is going to happen. Um, a lot of scientists really feel that, you know, we're close to something like this. This could just, we could fall into this very easily, into this situation. Yeah. And it's it's pretty frightening. And they say, um, if, if a, a new virus pops up like this and we're struggling trying to figure out what it is, it is going to just kill people. It's arbitrarily going to be wiping people out. They're not going to know how to stop the spread of it other than locking yourself in your house. Um, it, and it's frightening because as you see in this film, people don't necessarily buy into it. The people you know, in, in, in uh, Minneapolis that are talking to Kate Winslet, the politicians, the, town, the small town politicians are so frustrating because they're like, look, we don't want to close the malls. Can we wait until after Thanksgiving? Uh, you know, they, they're just, they don't want to be closing the schools, all this sort of stuff. And it's, it's who's going to be paying for all this. And those are the things that these people, um, go through their minds because they don't understand the scope of, of how something like this can really wipe things out. And because as, as we also see here, we had a, uh, a false alarm and you get those false alarms and it can really, uh, make people feel like it's not, it, it's not something they really need to do anything about. Well, and I don't get to say this that often, but this is an example, and that scene in particular with the small town uh, administrators is a great example of the day being saved by math. Uh, right. when, when Kate Winslet walks through the r naught mathematics, the reproducibility um, uh, calculation for how quickly these diseases will will spread based on the number of people you are likely to infect if you get sick with this disease, uh, was really interesting. And I spent the next half hour or so with my daughter watching, you know, creating spreadsheets that that calculate that. Like on day ten, when it hits half a million people, uh, you know how uh, you know based on this this are not calculation. Uh, where will you be? Uh, and uh, it's it's terrifying, but but absolutely grounds us in the reality of the situation. I think they do that really well in the script. Yes, indeed. Uh, let's talk first shot, last shot. Uh, first shot, we open over black and we hear coughing, and then we cut to Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, she's in the airport. It says day two. She's on the phone with her lover, and they're having a conversation. And, uh, you know, she coughs a little bit, and he's like, oh, you sound a little, are you okay? And she's like, oh, I'm just, just jet lag. That's how we open the film, day two. Now, interestingly, the last shot of the film, we kind of have jumped back in time, and we have now seen construction from her company happening. It uh, they're, they're tearing down a forest. This bulldozer plows into a, a tree. We see the bats fly down. Bat bites a pig. These pigs uh, are, are taken by uh, chefs. We see a chef buy it, cook it, and then, uh, you know, he smears bloody uh, pig mess all over himself, and then he leaves the <laughs> kitchen to go uh, pose with a picture with Gwyneth Paltrow. And so the very last shot of the film is, it's day one. We, we see Gwyneth, 
hugging this chef and uh, you know i don't know if she just doesn't notice his bloody apron or what but you know she she poses with the picture arms around him as uh, as we see them uh, the picture getting taken and it says day one so it's an interesting structure that they've done here where we actually start with day two and then we end the film learning how this whole thing started by jumping back to day one yeah uh how does that uh, how does that work for you it it, it sort of creates a um, you know, on the surface, it becomes a narrative loop. Uh, I, For me, I think it works really, really well, and it provides just the kind of backstory that I'd been hoping for the entire film. Yeah, it's, it is really interesting because we do see these scientists really trying to figure out where this thing came from. And they're looking through old video footage of her as she's at the casino and, oh, that she, you know, there's there's transference there. That's where it could have come from. Let's track that person as they go back through all of this. And it's really interesting because they never are able to pin something down. And it's not until the end of the film when we see Matt Damon looking at, at her camera and he sees these pictures and he spots this picture of her, which um, is the uh, moment that instigates us then jumping back in time to see her uh, in this particular scene. It's a great, great way to kind of solve the mystery. We now know how this whole thing happened. We are the omniscient viewer watching this and the people in the film are likely never going to know and it's a really interesting way to end the film saying this is how these things happen the world may never know how it started we're going to show you in the in in the audience how it happens in this film but in reality this is the sort of thing that there may be a clue out there that no one ever finds and and just how simple it is Right. Yeah, how right. simple, how quickly this thing happened because of these animals that we just keep together, that we farm in the way that we farm, uh, that we have destroyed this land the way we have destroyed it in order to create this. And yet still, this disease spread so simply or created itself so simply, uh, I, I think is a great message. This first shot, last shot is super intentional and i think um is another great example of a of a pairing uh of these two uh, devices i think it works really well yeah very interesting stay away from the bloody apron it should be a lesson you shouldn't be hugging chefs with bloody aprons on in the first place i think you know no offense to chefs in the audience but generally don't hug a chef if they're in chef mode my message to chefs is is leave your customers alone if you are covered in food don't don't hug me wait till you're cleaned up Please, chefs, don't hug me. Uh, Editing by uh, Stephen Mirioni. Mirioni? Is that how you would say it? I think I would say it that way. He's got some wow credits, right? The Revenant, Birdman, Monuments Men. (laughs) That's for you. 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 Uh, you know, we've we've talked about the the editing, I think, enough. But I, uh, you know, shout out, of course, to Stephen Mirioni. It's great, great work. Uh, The cast... You know, there's an interesting review in The Atlantic by Christopher Orr, who said, For all the craft that went into it, Contagion is ultimately beyond good or bad, beyond criticism. It just is, which I think is kind of a funny way to describe it. Uh, I think there's obviously a lot of craft and and art that goes into a film like this. I think it might be a reflection of uh, his reaction to the hyperlink cinema uh, style here and the number of stories. But I do think there's something to be said about that. You have so many of these stories and you're jumping around so much that in the end, it's like, is there a performance, a single performance that really stands out? And for me, I didn't think so. I enjoyed all the performances here. I think that Soderbergh works really well with his actors. 
and was able to get some great stuff from all of them. I think you're absolutely right. And in that light, let's just give credit where credit is due. We've got Marion Cotillard as Leonora Orantes, uh, our kidnapped victim. Matt Damon as the, uh, he is the guy who is immune to this thing. Uh, he is ironically married to Gwyneth Paltrow, who is patient zero. Isn't that, is it interesting at all to you that, that patient zero is married to the guy who can't get sick? That's funny. Um <laughs> I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne is uh, is the doc. Uh, Dr. Ellis Cheever uh, at the CDC. Jude Law uh, is the blogger. Uh, Kate Winslet is Erin Mears. She is also working with the CDC to study. She One of the things she did uh, in this film, specifically on Kate Winslet, uh, she did spend time at the CDC, and she said she wouldn't wear makeup or dye her hair or anything because the people in that role in real life that she plays, they don't make much money. They live at or below their means as medical practitioners, and so uh, she thought it was important to to represent that in the film. Very natural. The cold that she gets when she wakes up hacking, I mean, that the sound effects team gets uh, big kudos for that because it was just disgusting. I've... I've had colds where I sound like that, and it just is—it's just the grossest sound. Yeah, that was actually one thing that uh, Soderbergh said in an interview uh, on uh, Al Jazeera English. He said nobody on this team, on the team of people who made this film, hears coughs the same way again on planes in elevators. Uh, it is—it uh, it is life changing. Uh, after the sounds that were crafted for this movie. <laughs> I can uh, imagine. Jennifer Ely uh, plays uh, Dr. Allie Hextall. She is a um, fanta- fantastic actress. Uh, she spends a lot of time in a suit and over a computer. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting, uh, considering what I uh, what I said, that she was the one that uh, kind of was singled out by a lot of the critics as the one who they really uh, felt was outstanding. She's the kind of the uh, the standout here. Uh, and Kenneth Turan in the LA Times actually said uh, the two-time Tony Award-winning actress Jennifer Ely comes close to stealing the picture with this quietly yet quirkily empathetic performance, which I thought was really interesting. And I think it really, for, for me, boils down to the scene with her dad, which is really touching and mm-hmm. then of course just the the you know when she gives herself the shot which is uh pretty um you know it's, it's a brazen brave uh thing to do um certainly what was it was it um what was that killer b movie where uh was it uh michael kane injects himself with something to stop the killer bees <laughs> i don't know why that just came to my yeah, head but, uh, i i don't uh, i don't remember jennifer ely carries it better though uh, Elliot Gould is Dr. Ian Sussman. Uh, he works over at the university, and he is asked to shut down and cook the samples because this thing's just too deadly. Ends up uh, being the guy who sort of saves the day. Uh, Chin Han is Sun Feng, uh, uh, the kidnapper uh, and Chinese administrator. And Brian Cranston as Rear Admiral Lyle Haggerty, the military guy. Boy, he was that was uh, that could have been a good typecast for him if he wasn't so damn talented. That's right. I can see him. the The biggest one. I'm so glad you highlighted this too. The biggest one. Uh, the biggest bit of casting that I thought was so powerful. Uh, it was John Hawks as Roger. He's just always great. He's always great in such a small role here, and yet this this role really humanizes the whole medical uh, angle, right? Because he's the one connected with uh, Doctor Cheever. It is it, it represents both the socioeconomic gap, the intellectual gap, the professional gap, uh, and yet they become uh, close enough that uh, uh, Cheever actually sacrifices his own uh, vaccine for Rogers' son. 
Very powerful. Yeah, it was good. Great, great moment there. And terrific cast all the way around. Uh, cinematography, Steven Soderbergh as Peter Andrews actually uh, helmed, uh, lensed his own film. Talk about that. Yeah, this was uh, something going all the way back to, um, uh, I believe it was uh, Traffic. He wanted to have a credit that said photographed and directed by, um, but um, the Writers Guild, they would not allow another credit ahead of the writer. This boils down to those contracts and how all that stuff works. And so because Soderbergh he did not want his name used more than once in the credits, he decided at that point to adopt the pseudonym Peter Andrews, named after his father, Peter Andrew Soderbergh. Well, that's very charming. It's very sweet. That's very sweet. Uh, the film was shot on uh, Red One, 4.5K. This is one of the, is this one of the early films, uh, or earlier films on this camera? Do you remember? You know, I don't know. I uh, I'm not sure when the first uh, when the first red came out. It feels like it must have been one of the first ones, but uh, you know, I don't know. Well, it looks uh, it was it looks like a great treatment uh, for. Uh, I mean, it looks very much like film. They did a, a great job in post, uh, actually distressing it. And here we go. In March 2007, director Peter Jackson completed a camera test of two prototype Red One cameras, which became the 12-minute World War One film Crossing the Line. On seeing the short film, director Soderbergh told. Uh, Jannard, who was, uh, I think, somebody at the, uh, he, he owns the Red Company. Um, I am all in. I have to shoot with this. Soderbergh took two prototype Red Ones into the jungle to shoot his film. It was Che. It must have been Che. It was Che. That's yeah. what it was. Nice. Good find. Damn, that Red. That Red camera. Do you know Sing Street was also shot on that Red red One? I don't think it was Red One. Was it no, a Red One? it was one? just shot on Red. It was just shot on Red. You're right. Yeah. It's not a Red One. Yeah, they're they're way past the one. They're way past the one. They're on red seven. The dragon (laughs) now. Red niner. Isn't that the weapon? The red weapon? Isn't that the new one? It's like the the 8K. I don't know. It is. There it is. It's the red weapon. That is a silly name. It doesn't. It it looks like it. It looks a little bit like a weapon. Yeah, it's the scarlet. (laughs) The scarlet is the new 5K. Yes. Uh, And uh, the epic was the 6K and the weapon is the 6, 8K. Wow. 8K, Andy. So much for Blu-ray. Need that for my YouTubes. <laughs> That's right. Oh, man. Uh, you want to talk about uh, anything else about cinematography? Uh, just that, you know, because he was shooting on the Red One and the, and on location, he really wanted to do as much natural light as he could. So he did a lot of natural light, which I think looks great here. And then, you know, he color timed it. So like I mentioned with traffic, you know, there was some of the different color uh, temperatures highlighting different particular areas, which looked nice. And the only other note I had for cinematography, which I think sometimes was done in camera and my hunch is sometimes done in post, but the way that they would change focus, particularly how he would highlight a particular area where a sick person touched and he would linger on something. And you kind of get that funky focus where everything is kind of out of focus except for one little area that's really uh, in focus. And I liked the way that he was playing with the focal plane in this. I thought it was uh, it was a great way to emphasize the way that these uh, fomites are transferring the disease around. Did you find yourself actually mad as they would do that? Like as they would linger on the peanuts at the bar and on the door handle and... Like mad at the person who touched it or yeah, mad at the filmmakers? M- mad at the person it. who touched it and at restaurants for having community peanuts? <laughs> 
And why now, does that guy touch the bus door when them? he gets off? Yeah, it's just so gross. I was so mad. Uh, and uh, particularly, you know, with, that the average uh, human touches their face three to five times a minute. Uh, and I'm super hypersensitive to that now. That's so funny. I'm always thinking about touching my face. All right. We talked about uh, locations shot very much on location for the most part. Um, uh, Chicago uh, was shot as Minneapolis, uh, Atlanta, and uh, as itself, Chicago. They did uh, shoot at the CDC in Atlanta and Hong Kong for multiple locations, uh, including London, Geneva, and San Francisco. Uh, really uh, true to form. They wanted to make this uh, film uh, as intimate and local as they could. I think it uh, succeeds. I don't think they filmed Hong Kong for London, Geneva, and San Francisco. They, they filmed. They in actually London, Geneva, they and San did, Francisco. but only for certain neighborhoods in London and Geneva. <laughs> it may be surprising to you that Hong Kong actually looks a lot like Geneva, but only in certain neighborhoods. So it's, they're much they're, they're sticklers. Oh yeah. That. Yes. Uh, what'd you think of the sickness? Uh, early in the film, we see the crustiness around the lips. Did it feel appropriate for the nature of the pandemic? Yeah, you know, what I liked about it is it wasn't uh, dissolving people's innards like Outbreak. I mean, we never see it when they when they uh, cut the body open in Outbreak, and you don't see exactly what it's done to the person's insides. But what I like here is it's clearly a very scary thing that kills you really quickly. You're not, you're, your skin's not all falling off, but it's, it's, it's scary enough in the fact that it moves really quick, you start having seizures, foaming at the mouth, fall over, die. I mean, it's it's scary how quickly it is. I don't think they needed to make it gross, too. I thought it worked perfectly. I think so, too. And I think the scene that sells it the best is Matt Damon sitting there watching uh, and holding his wife as she seizes on the kitchen floor. Uh, yeah. Because so much of the scariness, uh, the, the fear that begins to spread for us as audience members is cemented in watching a personal spousal relationship unravel as a result of it like she is going to die and we all pretty much know it and we get to watch him deal with that and i think that's that actually sells it as much as the makeup but uh, but overall i agree with you i think it's the sickness looks good great you wanted to talk about cliff martinez behind the music you know, he's one of those composers that I kind of like, uh, but I kind of don't like. I, I He's worked with Soderbergh quite a bit. Um, I, I think that he is a composer who has kind of found his place in the industry, making stuff that um, it kind of creates a mood for a story. And you get a sense of that as you watch something. But um, But man, his stuff is just not really listenable. That's the, my biggest struggle with him is it's not like uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross doing Social Network, um, where it is kind of mood music, but it still is something that you can listen to. His stuff is really hard to listen to outside of the film. I think it works in context of the film. It gives me the energy I need in particular scenes to kind of move me through it. But man, I just don't enjoy listening to his stuff outside of uh, outside of the movie. I, and that I, that holds for most of his stuff. I, I can't think of a score of his that that I ever want to put on. That's interesting. That's interesting. I haven't listened to much of his stuff. Uh, I I thought it was interesting that he was uh, he was behind the score of War Dogs, which you guys just talked about in the latest Film Board episode. That's right. Did you have anything to say about uh, War Dogs score? I don't, I don't remember. remember a thing about it. I listened to it. <laughs> 
yeah, I saw the movie. Uh, the movie didn't. Uh, the music didn't stand out for me. Oh, uh, well, uh, he also did the music for The Nick, and I wanted to talk about The Nick because, uh, if I'm correct, you have not started watching that show. I have not. I still really want to. This is uh, Soderbergh's show. On uh, It was originally on Cinemax, uh, and I only just started it literally this weekend. Uh, I didn't even know that it was a Soderbergh thing, but he actually, uh, just like his films, he directed and uh, lensed every one of the 20 episodes in uh, across two seasons. Uh, and uh, so just one episode in, I can tell you, it's bananas, Andy. It is bananas, super intense, uh, and really gross, but fantastic. I can't wait to see it, and I uh, am surprised that Cinemax is still even around. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they're actually owned by HBO now, so really I should just say HBO. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, the scoring, uh, initially when they hand, when Soderbergh handed the rough cutoff to Cliff Martinez, he had the scores from uh, uh, The French Connection and Marathon Man backing the film um, before the original music was applied. Uh, what do you think? Do you think it would have been better or worse with The French Connection and Marathon Man? Probably better. <laughs> okay, I just wanted you to say that on tape. <laughs> Uh, final comments on the disease? The only other thing I was going to say about the disease itself was that this was actually um, happening uh, right around the, the 2009 flu pandemic uh, that we had. And they used that as inspiration along with the 2003 uh, SARS epidemic that was going on at the time. And um, But uh, to actually kind of create a sense of what this disease was, they actually used the Nipah virus, which originated in Malaysia in 1997. Um, and that one kind of evolved um, a chain of contagion from bats to pigs. And uh, uh, starting from the disturbance of a bat colony by deforestation. So they kind of pulled that story to create this this uh, origination for this particular disease, which I thought was kind of interesting. Don't hang out with bats. or Or pigs. Uh, you know, this is what they get for cooking those little baby pigs. <laughs> it's so it's I felt so awful. bad for those piglets. Awful. Although I have to say, the only thing I think of when I think of this movie now is the uh, that Simpsons episode, Spider Pig. <laughs> <laughs> so that would have been worse. That's funny. How'd it do uh, in the box office? Uh, this film didn't do too badly. Uh, this film, it opened uh, September 9th, 2011. It cost $60 million to make this movie. I couldn't find anything on Princeton Advertising. But, you know, it did uh, garner enough uh, interest and uh, drew the crowds in. It made just over $75 million domestically and uh, just almost $62 million internationally. All told, adjusted, that's about $143 million that it ended up making, leaving it at about an adjusted profit per finished minute of about 761000 That's so, pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, it puts it as number 78 on our list, right between the town and for a few dollars more. That's really good. Yeah, they did pretty good. I think it's, I, I'm going to stand by really good. I like it. I do like this one. I Like I said, I feel like we ended this one on a high note. Thank God. What a downer. Just about everything else was. Uh, I, I think it's probably time for us to uh, to go ahead and rank it and see how it goes. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and uh, search for Contagion. There are a couple of them. This one was 2011. And then uh, go ahead and click that little button, say add to your ranking. Uh, and you will, uh, you'll see. Let's see how it fares against our, uh, what is it? What are we up to now? Almost 250? This Gotta is going to be, be 259. 259. Mm-hmm. Let's see how it goes. First up, Contagion versus Fat City. Oh, <laughs> Contagion. <laughs> I'm going to say Contagion as well. Okay. 
Contagion or the Silent Partner. Oh, we're getting a little speakeasy double action here. Right. I'm going to say Contagion. I'm also going to say Contagion. Contagion or the Matrix. I am the Matrix on this I'm, one. I am the Matrix. Contagion or LA Confidential. Totally LA, LA Confidential. Confidential. Contagion or Zodiac. Zodiac for me. Are you heavy Zodiac? Not even a question. Okay. Zodiac it is. <laughs> Contagion or Scarlet Street? Totally Scarlet Street. Yes, definitely Scarlet Street. Contagion or Out of the Past? Out of the Past for me. Out of the Past. Seems It seems pretty easy. Like, I'm trying to come up with a reason to disagree. <laughs> we don't have to disagree. Well, Con- you know, drama. <laughs> You just want some tension. I just want some This tension. is the climax of the episode. We need tension. <laughs> Rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> don't worry, you'll win. <laughs> Contagion or The Great Escape? Oh, uh, I'm going to go The Great Escape. Me too. Contagion or Never Let Me Go? Here I'm going to say Contagion. I am also going to say Contagion. Look at that. Number 64. That kind of shot right up there. That's funny. I think it's like 69 on my list. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that feels good. That's a good good. spot. Feels really good. good. Absolutely. Uh, and certainly the highest in our disease series, right? I mean, do you, can you see real quick what the what the next highest one is? Well, Serenity is the highest. Oh, well, no, of course. That one wins, yeah. Yeah, that, that's definitely... You would rank Serenity over Contagion, right? Tell me. Absolutely. Yeah, good, okay. As, as I do at the end of every series on our letterbox, on our, I will create a list for the whole series, and I will put them in the order that we actually ranked them. I won't put the numbers because that's always changing, but I'll at, least, yeah. I'll at least put them in the order so people can see exactly what we thought. And uh, for the most part, they end up shaking out pretty accurately. What uh, what does this do for uh, Letterbox for you out of five stars? I'm four. I'm four and a half. I gave wow. it the half star, the Andy Grace star. Half wow, star. look at that. Yeah. No, I like it. You know, I, I really thought about this because I'm like, am I only giving this four? Am I giving this four stars because I've watched a lot of bad disease films? Or am I really giving this four stars? And I think I'm really giving this four stars. I really liked this film when I saw it way back in 2011. And I still really like this film. It doesn't have to do with just, you know, the it tasted better than the other uh, uh, stuff that wasn't so good. I think so, too. And, and I, you know, it... It's a different kind of film. The first time I saw it, I was I, I didn't like it that much, and uh, I, I think it was because what I expected was Outbreak. And back then, uh, I my memory of Outbreak was quite positive. It is not accurate anymore. That 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 memory is no longer quite positive for Outbreak. And so I felt like I was able to look at this film more through the lens of what I want a disease film to be, what I want a procedural film like this, a medical drama thriller to be. And I think Contagion succeeds in so many areas where so many other films fail uh, in this light. So I love that we ended on this one. I am a fan of Soderbergh. Uh, not all of Soderbergh, but a lot of Soderbergh. And um, uh, and so I, I feel like this is true to the catalog for me. Here, here. I, I, it, it's interesting because we covered genre disease films like The Crazies and... Um, Outbreak, I guess you could kind of put it into there as a little more of an action film. And um, The Omega Man and Serenity. I certainly enjoy disease incorporated into those genre films. And Serenity obviously was kind of the top of the heap there. But of the ones that we looked at that really focused on the disease itself, which I mean, really, I think it's what Andromeda Strain 
uh, kind of outbreak is kind of crossing the line between the two. Mm -hmm. And this, this one is the one that really stands out. Oh, yeah. Head and shoulders. Yeah. Where do we go from here? New series. Yes, we're done with this. And we're uh, in celebration of the upcoming uh, Magnificent Seven remake. We're going to be doing our Seven Samurai Family series, which is going to be quite a bit of fun. We're going to be looking at Kurosawa's original Seven Samurai and then a number of films that have been inspired by it or are remakes of it, like The Magnificent Seven, the original one, Um, Three Amigos, which is going to be a lot of fun to talk about. A Bug's Life, which is, uh, I think some people were a little surprised initially that uh, this was on the list here. And The Magnificent Seven, of course, the remake uh, with uh, Denzel Washington and Chris Pratt. I love it. I love how broad this series is. Absolutely. It, it makes me happy. You know, you know, I will say it's interesting. I think Bug's Life is the only one where you actually have any of the people who are a woman. Otherwise, it's predominantly men. Oh, doesn't make me that happy. <laughs> Uh, I think that's it, Andy. I think I'm done. I'm done with being sick, and I I just got to go to bed. No, no, Pete, don't. What I need to tell you is you need to get in your car right now and leave town. Get down here where it's safe, but don't tell anyone. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doing. Oh, we got a couple of delightful one stars coming at you. This is a one star uh, titled Educational, Not Thrilling by Joel Landau. Uh, And uh, you just saw this a couple of years ago. Frankly dull, says Joel. They tried and succeeded to demonstrate how an infectious disease would spread, be identified, and dealt with. It's timely given the recent Ebola outbreaks. I would say it's informative, but the acting was poor and the plot flimsy. Think of it as a documentary with acting, poor acting. Now, I actually appreciate this because I can totally see where he's coming from. And I, I so, this is kind of my sense memory of my impression of the film the first time I saw it. So um, I absolutely see how people could, could feel this way after watching this film, depending on kind of where they are. Yeah, and I mentioned earlier that I was going to get back to this point and never did. But I think there was something with some audiences, how they really felt that this film was boring. It wasn't as engrossing as something like Outbreak. It just wasn't a, you know, a fun watch. It felt very clinical. It felt very documentary style. Almost, I guess, some people probably felt like it was a modern uh, storytelling uh, style compared to Andromeda Strain. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I guess to each his own because I, I disagreed with uh, Joel. Um, but I think Marie... Feels pretty much the same. Marie gave it one star and said, really bad, bad acting, horrible dialogue, actors you can't care about, so long and boring and absolutely no climax, just fizzles out. Story doesn't even make sense. I don't know what else to say. I feel brain dead after watching this. Well, I disagree with her too. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM 
and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.